Today's episode will be a real feast for beep lovers, as our guest heretic is Sarah Knight, author of Calm the F*** Down. Besides the beeps, you can also hear about topics like how people can realize they are suffering from anxiety, are alcohol and drugs really the answer to combating it, and how we can control it without burying our feelings. That's coming up next on the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. If you're still confused about what to eat and not getting the results you thought you'd get by going organic, go to NutritionHeretic.com and download the shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague for free. The shit list details what health food companies want you to believe about the crap they peddle and why the real foods they're meant to replace are far better. Stop letting big health food dump all over you and download the shit list today. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. (laughs) It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Aloha and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. I think, guys, this is going to be our last episode for the year and maybe forever. We'll, we'll see where this goes. Uh, I have just been burning the candle at both ends for way too long and I need to take a break from podcasting for a while. So, uh, but I, I think th- this, our last guest, uh, possibly forever is um, she really kind of brings everything full circle with what we've been talking about over the past three years uh, of this podcast. And uh, I'm going to actually tell you something that uh, I'm going to ask her about this later, but I'm going to tell you guys what happened to me. As you know, I recently went to Japan and I am planning to run tour a tour to Japan next year. So if you're interested in that, uh, go to uh, nutritionheretic.com and sign up to get on my my newsletter. I will be sharing, uh, you know, what's going to happen on that tour. Uh, and um, what happened though was was when I was leaving for Japan. Uh, there was a, a typhoon that went through Kansai, uh, which is, uh, where Osaka is. And it happened the Tuesday before I left. So that, and I was leaving on a Monday. And so they can't, had to close the airport because, uh, one of the, uh, I think it was a bridge got, that goes to the airport got knocked out. And, the prime minister gets on TV and he's like, don't worry, guys, it'll be back up and running by Friday. So I'm like, OK, cool. But they still actually had one wing of it open. It was just the one side wasn't open. So I'm like, you know, cool. This is good. This is good. So um, on Saturday morning, I wake up to a message in Japanese, which now I have to put through Google Translate uh, from Jetstar running my internal flight in Japan from 
Tokyo to Osaka, saying, Hey, your flight's canceled. Good luck. So I get on the phone with Jetstar, and they're like, yeah, we canceled that flight. And I'm like, well, what's, you know, like, do you replace the flight or something to complete this itinerary? And they say, nope, good luck, and hang up. Uh, I call Japan Airlines, which is the major carrier for the entire itinerary, and they said, we don't know anything about them not running any flights to Kansai. We still show it as running. And I said, well, I have an email here that says it's not running. And they said, well, we don't see that. And I said, I can show you the email. And they're like, we don't care. So, you know, I, I'm like, hey, worst case scenario, I have to do a charge back and I get the entire trip for free because, you know, like, you know, their, their policy is, should be to, give the itinerary, you know, they're, they're insured for natural disaster, or at least they should be, uh, to replace flights. Um, and so my friend who lives in Osaka, she finds a, an internal flight going to Itami Airport in Osaka, which is even closer to the city. So I'm like, okay, I have to spend an extra grand, but fine. I'll fly into there. I'll work it out later. Monday morning, I am getting ready to get on the plane. I have to leave my house by eight o'clock. I'm up at six to do the last of my packing or, you know, putting my toothbrush or whatever in my bag. 621, I get an email from Japan Airlines saying, hey, we just found out that your internal flight was canceled. Call the people who you booked your ticket with. So I know this is a long story, guys. <laughs> so I, I um, call uh, Expedia and the guy's really nice. He hooks me up with the people from Japan Airlines. And they're like, oh, you bought a ticket for yourself? No, no, no. You can't take that flight. If you take that flight, we'll cancel your entire itinerary. You know, and so long story short, I end up on the phone with Expedia and Japan Airlines all the way to the airport. And, um, you know, understandably, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm actually laughing but I'm also a little annoyed, you know, just like, seriously, like the morning of and, and, and oh, this, this was the thing is that they said that they would replace the flight, but they would send me 24 hours later. To, and I had meetings on the, on that day. And they said, not only would they send us 24 hours later, but now I had to find a hotel because they were not going to put us up in any kind of lodging overnight. So now I had to find a hotel while I'm in flight uh, with two children and my husband and, um, you know, find a place to stay in Tokyo for the night, you know, get there late in the evening, get back to the airport the next day. It just seemed like more than I could handle. I mentioned this to a, a friend of mine, like, because she's helping us get to the airport, and she totally dismisses me. She just kind of says, ah, don't worry about it. And I'm saying, well, you know, I got kids. I got, you know, I got, I've got plans. We've all got plans and something's amiss here. Um, and I felt very, just like I said, dismissed by the whole situation. Um, you know, and, and, and again, it wasn't because I was so angry and so what, but you know, I, I think it's pretty understandable to be frustrated. Um, at something like this, especially now they're telling me they're just going to cancel the entire itinerary and leave me stranded in Japan, which in retrospect may not be the worst thing of all. Uh, in any case, that brings me to our guest heretic today, who is Sarah Knight. She is the author of Calm the F*** Down. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, sorry about that long-winded... I usually don't give quite as long-winded a story at the beginning. No, it was... 
It was a saga. Yeah, right. And, and so do you kind of understand where I was going with this? That, you know, it's on the one hand, it's incredibly frustrating. Like I said, even the, the, my credit card people, when I was talking to them about what was going on, they were like, how can you be laughing? I'd be in tears. And I said, no, I said, this is hilarious because I can write this into a book one day. You know, like this is like, to me, this is just <laughs> fodder, you know, <laughs> because it was so outlandish and so ridiculous. But at the same time, when my friend was just like, eh, don't worry about it. I was like, really? That's a little dismissive. <laughs> so, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, it's part of the premise of, of the whole book. Of right. Calm the f- down because, you know, I really take issue with people or with uh, when people say, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. You know, it's not so bad. And I'm actually married to one of those people. Oh, so great. <laughs> I've spent, you know, the last 19 years or so trying to separate my annoyance from whatever problem is happening from my annoyance of my super calm husband who's telling me not to worry about it. Um, and then also trying to be productive about solving the problem. And you sound like you did all of the right things, you know, got on the phone, talked to all the different parties, you know, got yourself in transit. I might've just curled up into a ball in my original hotel room and refused to set foot outside until somebody solved this problem for me. Um, (laughs) So, you know, that's pretty admirable, actually, but it does not feel good to be dismissed. And so the entire uh, text of Calm the Down is really about me telling people, I am not dismissing you. Whatever problem you think you're having or that you are having and how bad you think it is, is exactly 100% correct. I'm not here to judge Mm -hmm. uh, or to put any value judgments on what upsets you, what frustrates you, what annoys you, what makes you panic. I'm just here to help think through logical solutions to those problems. And to me, that's the most helpful thing, not just being told everything will be okay and believing it, but really setting forth the steps that will make it okay, or at least make it bearable, right? You well, know, or at least help you survive whatever it is, even if it isn't okay at all. Right, exactly. And, um, and you know, what, what ended up happening is when I got to the airport, like, like I said, I was on Expedia, like right up until 10 o'clock when I had to be at the airport. And they finally had someone there that I could speak to. Um, he from Japan Airlines, you know, from Japan. And so, mm-hmm. and, and actually, I didn't really lie, but, <laughs> but I was going to see, um, an acupuncturist the following day. So I was like, look, mm-hmm. I have a doctor's appointment, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, they could, they could interpret that however they wanted. Right. Sure. So, you know, I've got, I've got a doctor's appointment. I have to be there by this day. I already bought tickets. Can't you just weave those into my itinerary? So, you know, mm-hmm. he basically, he said, just don't worry. We'll get on the plane. We'll have it all resolved. And I, that was the first time I felt heard. You know, and I felt like somebody was actually like, you know, because obviously at this point he is looking at a person and he's seeing Mm -hmm. that, you know, I've got this family with me um, and that we're trying to, you know, get on this flight. So, um, so when we get off the flight, there's three women with a big sign saying, (laughs) uh, you know, Adrian, Hugh, and then the rest of the, the family's names, these women, you know, they show up with a folder, they take the new flight, they weave it into the current itinerary, they give me my money back. And we have this like awesome vacation. So when I, you know, I got when I got to Japan, I told my friend, you know, who kind of dismissed me, I said, Hey, uh, by the way, you know, I got them to work things out. She goes, Oh, see, I told you everything would be okay. And I said, Oh, "Mm." oh, yeah. So then I say, you know what? 
besides the fact that that's not helpful, uh, <laughs> right? Um, I, I said, but this is the thing. Sometimes when we have these challenges, and this is my interpretation, it's a an opportunity to rise to the occasion. You know, do you do you you know sit back and let it happen to you, and let you you know your kids sleep on the street in Tokyo for a night mm-hmm. um, because you didn't you know you, you weren't for lack of a better term, aggressive enough in getting this resolved? Uh, Or do, or is this an opportunity to say, no, I'm not going to take it anymore. Change the course of my life. Don't keep sending me this. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And well, you know what you said about the first guy who actually said, I'm going to help you. We're going to work this out. That to me is the beginning of, uh, of calming the down in the beginning of solving any problem is acknowledging the problem. So he was the first person who was like, oh, yes, this is a problem. You know, it sounds like everybody else from the first person you talked to on the phone to your friend sort of said, ah, it's not that big a deal. You know, it'll sort itself out or sorry, we can't help you. We don't we're not acknowledging your problem of how you are going to get you and your family from one city to another. Um And so, you know, I think it's really important that we stand up and say to ourselves and to other people, hi, this is a problem. It has just happened. We need to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and and I've been in that situation a lot in my life. And interestingly enough, sort of like what you were saying before, this, you know, people said, like, I would just break down and cry. And I'm like, why? Like, you know, I had had movers cancel on me. Like, as a matter of fact, they didn't even have me on the books. Oh, God. <laughs> I was, I, and I, something told, uh, my instinct said, call these guys and make sure they're going to be here tomorrow morning. And mm-hmm. they didn't show up. You know, they, they said, oh, we don't even have you on our list. And I'm like, but you, we went through everything. And, uh, you know, I got this, they're like, well, sorry, we don't have anyone. So I got on the phone. I started calling people. And the next morning I had a guy there with a van, you know, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. and, and my friend, and when I finally got to work, my friend said, I don't know how you pulled that together. I would have just, you know, like you said, curled up in a fetal position. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an instinct that a lot of us possess. And, you know, I talk a lot in the book about anxiety and what it does to you and, yes. and panic and frustration and sadness and a feeling of injustice. And for some people, you know, it makes them avoid facing up to the problem altogether and mm-hmm. certainly not being able to take any actions to fix it. And it sounds like you're, you're already well on your way as a student of, uh, you know, of the calm, the down methods, which is to say, okay, you know, this happened. Now what? Now what do we do? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when, um, like you, you talk, like you said, you talk a lot about anxiety in your book. Uh, and, you know, how do people know when they're suffering from anxiety? Maybe that's, that's where I want to go with this question. <laughs> well, it, that's a great question because I think sometimes it's really hard to tell. You know, from the time that I was a little kid, I had an aunt who sort of said, oh, I'm nervy. You know, I'm feeling mm. nervy right now. Um, there were episodes with people I knew, uh, adult figures in my life, that I now realize were panic attacks. But at the time, that was not how it was explained to me as a kid. There were things that happened to me in my teens and 20s that I didn't realize were anxiety fueled until everything really came to a head when I was about 31. And I had my first ever panic attack, you know, in the office in front of my colleagues and had Mm. no idea what was happening, thought I was having an aneurysm, thought I'd been poisoned, you know, really just 
was my mind was working overtime to try to find a reason for why I felt this way. Yeah. And so one of the reasons, and I write about anxiety in all of my books um, from the very beginning of the series of Mm -hmm. the No Given Guides. And I think it's important to talk about it because if I had known a couple of years before my first, uh, my first big panic, panic attack, what those symptoms meant, what the headaches, the nausea, the tightness, the shortness of breath, um, the inexplicable fatigue, all of these things that you kind of go through and they make you feel like you're just operating under a little bit of constant malaise. Those were things that turn out to have been uh, symptoms of anxiety. And so, you know, people can be clinically anxious like me, or they can just be sort of temporarily situationally anxious when something bad happens. Mm. You know, you don't necessarily have to have a a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. But I do think that people really, a lot of people don't understand why they feel bad. And if you consider anxiety as a potential reason for why you, f- you feel the way you do, I think many people would would be able to then solve that problem. But you can't solve a problem that you don't know you have. Mm, right, right, right. Yeah, and uh, do, do you think people are, you know, dealing with that with basically drugs and alcohol? Yeah, because oh, they don't because people they don't know self-medicate. What yeah, people self-medicate in a major way and and sleeping, you know, I mean right. anxiety is certainly not distant from <laughs> depression and there's a lot of ways that you combat these mental illnesses or these um as I said situational bouts of anxiety or depression or things like that where you are just doing what you can to make yourself feel good even if the thing that is making you feel good is not solving the underlying problem. And right. in Calm the F*** Down, I make a big point about identifying your underlying problem mm. because you really can't. It, it would be like, you know, taking cough medicine for a broken toe. Right. It's it's not going to solve your underlying problem. Right, so. right. Right. But so, so when we talk about anxiety, is that more often, you know, on the side of how we deal with these curveballs of life or is it or it could be both. Um, is it more of the expectation that things will always unfold in a negative way? <laughs> I think it's a combination of all of that, including an expectation for things to unfold positively and then constantly being disappointed and freaked out by those unmet expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another big cause of anxiety. So it's all it's and this is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to identify, to treat, to accept the fact that you are experiencing it because it's so, it seems so illogical and irrational. But when you learn more about anxiety, you realize that it has, you know, extremely logical point A to point B correlations. Um, But I just think that some people are better at dealing uh, with curveballs and some people aren't. And I happen to be a really rational, logical uh, type A, organized, smart, you know, ambitious person. But for whatever reason, my capability of handling bad things happening was never, uh, never, you know, matched my day-to-day capability of handling life. So one of the reasons that I wrote Calm the F*** Down was because in the last three years since my husband and I left New York and we live on this tropical island, um, I've been really forced to not calm down because I'm, 
you know, greeted every day with beautiful sunsets, which I am, and that's great. But because things just don't go according to plan around here, you know, it's very different, very different life, very different um, daily tasks and challenges. And so I really had to just kind of sit back and go, all right, well, when things don't go as expected, I just have to change course and, you know, solve whatever problem happened and prevent new ones. And so it's been uh, some conditioning, some uh, some geographical conditioning on my end, but also in the course of the book, I talk to people about how you can practice these changes in mindset for yourself. You don't have to relocate to a, a tropical island, although that is a very pleasant thing to do <laughs> if you're if you're into that. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I totally get it, and um, you know sometimes uh, people here they complain like, oh, why so expensive? Oh, this, oh that, and I think to myself, you have no idea. Like, seriously, like, you know, people, they, they, basically everything's a trade-off, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so living on an island, um, and, you know, no offense, but we're, we're a little bit more first world <laughs> than, than, than DR. Um, Indeed. But, um, you know, you, there's, there's a concept that we're all at the beach all day, right? People don't really Correct. take it serious that we work mm-hmm. and we have obligations. Um, it's just that our obligations are, or, or commitments are a little bit different. I think they, they take on a different life here mm-hmm. um, where, you know, living in New York city, we talked about this before, right? Living in New York city, is just, it's just a constant bombardment with stimulation and, uh, yeah. and, and rules. And, you know, everybody's supposed to, you know, be in these like nice, neat boxes where we can kind of uh, figure out who you are and what you stand for. And, you know, your house has to be a certain way. Your, you know, kids have to be a certain way. Like if you go to a party, you have to dress a certain way, you know, <laughs> there's, there seems- or even if you just leave your apartment, right. I definitely felt a lot of that kind of pressure working in a corporate job. I mean, nothing, I worked in book publishing. I was an editor, so it's not like I was on the, you know, the stock, stock exchange, exchange floor working at Morgan Stanley or something, but um, I did feel like there was a lot of pr- uh, pressure, especially being a young professional, a 20-something-year-old woman coming up through the ranks and wearing the right things and wearing makeup and blow-drying my hair and, you know, and just sort of keeping up appearances of a what I thought a young professional woman needed to, needed to be. And it's just not who I am. Right. And I think that the difference, the, the thing to focus on is not whether you're good at that, because I was very good at it. Right. I was very good at doing all of those things and saying all of those things and, you know, and following the path, but it wasn't making me happy. And in fact, it was causing me to be really more stressed out and more panicked and mm-hmm. more overstimulated than I really needed to be. So I have traded one set of cultural uh, challenges for another but the ones that face me here are ones that I feel better equipped to deal with um, because in part because I have more autonomy over my own career now than, now that I work sure. for myself, but also just because I don't I feel like I don't have to take everything quite so seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know I, I don't I don't want to make it sound like we don't. Uh, go through, you know, the sort of daily trials and tribulations we do. We're not at the beach every day. We're not, um, you know, drinking Coco Locos seven days a week. Uh, you oh. know, nothing wrong with that. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> no, no, no judgment. Um, but, you know, but I also, I feel like I can just walk out of my house in, you know, an old t-shirt 
and and a sarong and get done what I need to get done. And people aren't judging me on my appearance. They're just dealing with me to do whatever social interaction or business transaction needs to get done. So there's a lot of, I think, pressure that was lifted off of me from getting out of New York City and getting out of corporate life um, that I've also been able to transition here to the things that go really, really wrong, like when a hurricane rips through the town and your windows blow in, um, and really treat those things as problems that I can solve and not be constantly worried about stupid like whether I had time to blow dry my hair this morning. Right. Well, yeah, and that's just it is that, you know, I don't want to discount, um, you know, people who like that <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or people, you know, who are in that situation currently. Uh, but I, this is, this might sound a little harsh, but I feel like when I, I grew up in New York, I, I lived there, um, until I was in my mid twenties and then I moved to New Jersey, which doesn't sound like it's, you know, very different, but I mean, it's, there's still a lot of those same, you know, pressures of living on the mainland. Uh, mm-hmm. and I feel like I wasted a lot of my life d- trying to manage all of that. Shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, if, yeah, I mean, like hours I, I think... wasted on, on appearance and, and stuff when I could have been like actually doing meaningful things. Yeah. I mean, I think some of it is, uh, a, a valuable and useful learning and life experience. And some of it probably was a waste. You know, I would never, look back at my 15 years living in New York City, um, you know, after I graduated from college, moved to New York to be with my boyfriend who turned into my husband. Uh, so that worked out <laughs> and have had a career that I really loved in many ways. But I do think that there are things I would have made this change that I made in 2015, at least five years sooner, yeah. if I had had a crystal ball and realized that it was not going to that it was only going to impact my life positively to get off of that career path right. and do something different. You know, there was a lot of risk assessment and fear and just personal, you know, who am I without this career? Why have I been working so hard for it if I'm just going to throw it all away? And I write about that in all of my books as well. And, you know, I think I've hit a point now where my very, very, very close to 40 year old self would tell my 20 year old self, Hey, you know, maybe don't wait so long before you <laughs> before you do the things that you really want to do. I guess maybe don't spend so long in the years where you were already questioning it and you were already unhappy. Right. Um, and, you know, if that translates to listen to your gut, then I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think for, for me, because I'm, I'm quite a bit older than you, um, but for me, it's uh, – Working from home, at least in the way that we can do it today, just didn't exist when I got out of college, you know, and it, and, sure. and it took me, you know, even though, you know, like Windows 95 and, you know, AOL and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. but, you know, it took me a while to realize like what an internet millionaire was and what, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like people who could actually just make money from home and, and all of that, that it wasn't like the old time, like stuff envelopes, you know, right. <laughs> whatever uh, thing. And um, uh, yeah, it took, took me a while to get comfortable with that whole concept. And then when I did, it was still, you know, like, okay, my husband wants to stay at his job. You know, I've kind of, forced him to move to Hawaii <laughs> but, uh, and he's, he's working in the next room uh, but uh, he still has to go into an office every so often but yeah it's like I think as Americans too we're not as adventurous I think as we think we are 
And oh, uh, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, there are very few Americans down here uh, in my town. It's really it's mostly French and Italian expats, and oh, then nice. probably Brits and Canadians make up the majority of the English speaking mm-hmm. expats or immigrants, as I like to think of us, because right. that is what we are. Yeah. Um, and I do think that Americans are are more risk averse because they've had so much. You know, yes. I. I think it's hard to give up what you've already had and to really live a, a very, very different, slightly less cushy um, and sort of unusual day-to-day life when you've had this really prescribed, uh, you know, comfortable life. And not to say that every American has that no. comfortable life, but there's a, there's a comfort in knowing knowing what to expect at least, you know, whether or not you, whether or not you're blue collar, middle class or, you know, um, or really well off. And when you come to a place like this, you don't really know what to expect. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, I I think it it goes back further than this, but from the perspective of what you're saying, I think the nineties really spoiled everyone because Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of like the, the sweet spot where like most people had, as far as I know, most, (laughs) most people that that I know had a little bit of disposable income. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with uh, the, the, you know, economic downturn which is like now in like 20 years <laughs> going mm-hmm. on practically uh people didn't know how to pull back so now people are like majorly in debt because they mm-hmm. don't know how to downsize they don't know how to live within their means any longer mm-hmm. uh, but i, I think th- there might also be something about the size of of the u.s where you can travel for thousands of miles and just never Right. hit another somebody else's border basically yeah i mean my my husband um is a you know it was generally a really well-traveled guy from a well-off family within the u.s but he had never been to europe until we went the summer of 2016 um and that's not because he hadn't sort of had financial opportunity to to take trips like that or that he wasn't you know curious or whatnot it just they just they vacationed in other parts of the United States. Right. They traveled to other parts of the U.S. for, um, you know, for field trips and for school purposes. And he just didn't ever, you know, leave the country, which I thought was fascinating because I'm from a really small town, um, and a and not particularly financially well off background. And I was trying to find ways my whole life to get out of America. Same here. <laughs> um, I knew we know, had more not, things in common. <laughs> Probably not for reasons that I could have articulated back then, but I really was, you know, just trying to find ways and and did and did manage to do, uh, you know, sort of study abroad type things like that and and take little trips here and there. And and it was valuable to me because I had to really save and plan and it had to be sort of worth it to have uh, to have gone through the. I don't know what you would call it, the austerity of, of that saving and planning and not doing other things that I really wanted to do in order to have this other experience. So I'm really lucky now that things worked out so well with my books that I have a comfortable life and the various new challenges that have popped up in the Dominican Republic are not are certainly not beyond my means to to fix um, and to deal with. But but yeah, I do think that overall Americans seem much more risk averse than other people from other countries that I've met. Right. And do you think that's contributing to anxiety and uh, just uh, overreacting maybe, or, or maybe 
maybe overreacting, but freaking out, you know, about, <laughs> about different situations. Do you think in any way our kind of, you know, I- inward focus play, well, I do plays think with that? that right now, um, you know, from everything I've observed among my friends and family and myself with the current political climate in the U.S., I think that people like us are starting to realize that everything is not always great and going to be great. And particularly for people who grew up in my generation, um, there was no reason uh, for, you know, at least for straight, moderately well-off white people to uh, worry about, like they always could sort of fall back and be like, well, at least I live in America, land of the free, home of the brave. Like at least nobody's, um, you know, at least nobody's jailing me for my political opinions. And, you know, like this, And now I think in the last couple of years, everybody's starting to get really collectively freaked out Mm -hmm. um, just in general. And so then when you add that to whatever personal situational problems you may be having, you almost feel like you don't have the safety net of, you know, at least I, at least I'm American, you know, like right Right. now I'm like, I kind of don't. I don't really want to be. Um, yeah. <laughs> tell people I'm Canadian. Uh, and <laughs> well, It's funny you say that because when we were in, in Japan, we kept telling people would say, well, so where are you from? We're like Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is technically a, a different country. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, yeah. And, and, you know, but if we said, if we said America, like the, the looks were so different than saying yeah. Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do think that there is a, there is a collective, uh, anxiety that has been building among people who who were much more carefree mm-hmm. uh, than they than they have been for the last couple of years. So you know, but that's just again, that's anecdotal. Right. Um, that's just you know, all my all my friends in their liberal bubble. So, well, what I do mean, I know? There, there, I was going to say there there may be um, you know some truth to that as well because since uh, 2016, suicides have been up dramatically in this country. I have heard I've heard statistics to that fact and it's really scary and it's also you know hate crimes have been up well, uh, well, we dramatically my husband is Jewish and so Yeesh. you know of course most recently well actually not cuz last night we had the worst mass shooting in 12 days but before that it's been 12 um, days the, wow <laughs> the worst one you know the synagogue in Pennsylvania yeah, and yeah. you it, it takes things like that unfortunately but it but it does for certain swaths of the population to go, oh, wait, oh, God, this is really bad. You know, I'm sure yeah. that um, the LGBTQ population was thinking that, well, they've been thinking it forever. But, you know, after the Pulse nightclub shooting, that was a real wake up call. Right. And so I do think that, you know, the fact that the incontrovertible fact that hate crimes are on the rise uh, after a period where they were on the decline for for year over year over year for quite some time is right. very anxiety inducing (laughs) whether you even whether you even know that or not you're just you know especially if you're all over social media you can't scroll through a facebook or a twitter feed without getting little doses of anxiety in you know more than half of the headlines that you might scroll by so it's i think it's contributing to people being um just feeling uncertain and, and on edge. And some people might do what I did when I was feeling uncertain and on edge within my own life and my own mind and my own career and say, all right, you know what, if if it's bad, how could it be worse if I try something new that I 
that I really want to do that I think will make me happier. You know, so some people might be taking this opportunity to say, well, if the planet is going to dissolve into a molten mass by 2040, um, you know, if we're going to end up under authoritarian rule in another two years, maybe I should just go you know, open a hostel in Cambodia and, yeah. and see what I can see, you know, or maybe I should take that trip to the Antarctic or, uh, you know, whatever it is. So, so there could be some, uh, some positive coming out of that collective anxiety. It could be that some people are saying, all right, well, I can't feel any worse. So why not try something totally new? Right. Well, the, the, you know, um, I completely agree. Um, and just to speak a little bit to like the, the suicide, um, you know, there's, there's nothing like a, a, a suicide or a, de- a death in general, but specifically a suicide to make you really just say, you know, this is all an illusion. And yeah. who gives a shit if I, like you said, pack up and open up a hostel in Cambodia? <laughs> like, you know, like what's the worst that could happen now? Like, uh, mm-hmm. like I, I, you know, you feel, when you feel like you're already at bottom, you only have, you know, more to gain, right? You, if you're mm-hmm. at the bottom, you can't, you can't lose more than bottom. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, um, you're right. I think that this is, um, kind of growing pains. Uh, that a lot of us are going through right now where we're just like, you know what, take a chance. What's, you know, we're, we're seeing how can actually get. Exactly. Why don't we, um, you know, just try to secure our own happiness or, or Mm -hmm. just not even necessarily happiness, but just, um, just take charge. Exactly. Take charge. Some kind of autonomy over the path instead of letting, um, letting it happen to the country or the government or whatever set it out for you. And I think that the same rule of thumb can be applied to people who want to take a different path than their family, uh, or than their family wants them to take. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said. I write a lot about being the black sheep of the family, um, in my last book called you do you. And, you know, I think that we often feel constrained, uh, sometimes falsely, sometimes only in our own minds, by what our families or our employers or the culture thinks we should be doing. So even mm-hmm. if it's not the actual government who's got their you know, foot, on, foot on your neck, um, it could be that you have heretofore you know, gotten all the way through medical school because you're, you think your parents want you to be a doctor and you really don't want to be. And maybe right now you're thinking to yourself, you know what? The world is a show. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. And so if, if that is, uh, you know, another motivating factor for people to kind of shake up their lives, then more power to them, I say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do, do you think that there's any one group that is disproportionately affected by anxiety or, or by, you know, life and, and, uh, you know, trying to balance home and work and self-care and all this other stuff. Do you, do you feel that uh, any group like, uh, you know, whether it's women or children or, or men um, or, you know, Chinese, <laughs> Jews, blacks, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think the the science will tell you that women are disproportionately affected, and it's possible that working mothers and mothers in general within the scope of women, um, it's also possible that teen girls are the most affected. You know, I don't really know because I'm not a a, a scientist or a scholar of this type type of thing, but 
I certainly can say anecdotally from hearing from, you know, thousands of readers all over the world for the last three years that my books have been coming out that um, it, I'm hearing a lot more from, from women. And I hear a lot from men, but more from women uh, mm-hmm. about, you know, how my outlook on anxiety and the managing of it and social pressures to conform and perfectionism and all of that is, uh, is looming large in their lives. So I do think that women have a somewhat tougher road to hoe in that, in that sense. Right. Right. And uh, just as you were speaking, I was just remembering, um, because I did mention men, um, that a friend of mine who's uh, an ex-cop in in San Francisco was telling me about uh, suicides on in the department, and um, mm-hmm. you know, she said uh, by and large, she's like every time that there was any kind of suicide, there it was a man, mm-hmm. um, you know. And what I'm wondering is because of. And, and I don't think it's not unique to American culture, but although it might be a little more exaggerated in our culture, uh, are men just not being given as many tools? You know, women are allowed to be vulnerable to a, to a point, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think with men, there's kind of the bravado that they've got to put up the, you know, big strong man and you know, can't let their feelings out. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that's why they're choosing more dramatic or, or drastic, I should say, um, mm-hmm. so, solutions or non-solutions <laughs> to their problems. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, again, without being, uh, you know, somebody who has studied this professionally, mm-hmm. I think that it's fair to say that there is more of a stigma. There's certainly a stigma around mental health, and there's more of a stigma around asking for help and getting therapy and going to a doctor and getting diagnosed and taking meds and stuff. And that probably adversely uh, or affects men more than it does women because it, there is a cultural, at least in, in America, a cultural bias against men showing weakness, you know. Yeah. All right. And it's not necessarily a weakness. It's just you know, something that we it's all have to get through, right? And, but it's, it's but it's perceived, perceived that way. Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. I know. I, mm-hmm. I, I I was agreeing with you. I wasn't trying to say that you, mm-hmm. you know, not putting words in your mouth. Uh, no, <laughs> so. I want to speak. I want to make sure I don't misspeak. It's, a, okay. it's definitely an occupational hazard when doing podcast. <laughs> um, so, um, how do we stay in control? And I'm, and maybe control is the wrong word, but you know, how do we not let the anxiety, the freak out, um, you know, affect us without burying our feelings. Uh, because like, as you said before, it's important to acknowledge, right, that this is mm-hmm. happening um, and, and understand the source of it. But how do we, how do we stay in control and not, you know, stifle it so that it comes out as something so dr- dr- uh, drastic as suicide, murder, whatever? Well, in Calm the F*** Down, I really place an emphasis on logical thinking. And that's because for me, you know, I'm not here to talk about our feelings. That's not, I'm, I'm not an emotionally uh, <laughs> savvy uh, therapist. But what I do think is that you can take bad things that are happening in your life, whether they are, uh, you know, relatively minor uh, to to very undeniably major, mm-hmm. and you can choose to, uh, and I call it in the book, 
uh, emotional puppy crating. Um, so <laughs> if you think about emotions like puppies, you can't, they're, they, they're distracting, they can be fun, they can be upsetting, you know, maybe they just peed on your mother-in-law's carpet, um, maybe they're, they're kissing your nose and they're the sweetest thing you've ever, you've ever, you know, seen. But either way, you can't really get anything done with a puppy running all over your living room and jumping in your lap and licking you and stuff. Right. So when I talk about, you know, experiencing the stages of a freak out and, you know, and I, and I define that as anything from panic to depression, to uh, anger, to avoidance. There's a lot of different ways to freak out that I talk about in the book. Um, I say, you know, the same way you do with your puppy is you acknowledge its existence. You give it a little bit of time, you know, you give that emotion a little bit of time to healthily express itself. And then you pick it up by the scruff of the neck and you put it over here in its crate and people can, you know, get on me all they want about, you shouldn't crate train dogs. It's just a metaphor. I don't even have a dog. <laughs> but, but like, you know, and that's what I do is when I'm feeling myself get into that state, uh, whatever state uh, it may be, but a negative one, I just kind of compartmentalize. And that sounds like a bad, a bad word. And it has bad connotations in, in psychology, but it also um, is the, the, the process by which I take these emotions and I put them over here. I take my emotional puppy. I'm like, Hey, you, yeah, you're, you're angry. Like, okay, be angry for a little while. And now you're going in the crate and now I'm going to deal with, you know, the stuff that's in front of me that I can't deal with when I'm distracted by that emotion. So it's a, I definitely draw a distinction between, um, it's not about not having emotions. It's not about never playing with your puppy. It's about, you know, letting it do its thing for a, you know, reasonable period of time and then setting it aside so that you can get to work. And, um, you know, I, I approach all of this logically and rationally because it's the antithesis of an illogical, irrational brain that is overcome with panic. And it's how I've learned to deal with my own um you know, my own tendencies in that way. And I ask myself, wait, how likely is this to happen? What is the probability of this Mm -hmm. crisis that is triggering this reaction in me? Because a lot of times people are really freaked out about things that haven't even happened yet and probably won't. Um, And again, it's a very logical, rational approach to say, okay, what's the probability? And I, I talk about in the book, in terms of, you know, how a weather person forecasts a storm, you know, these are storms and how do you forecast them via probability? And then right. it's like, okay, well, how soon is it going to happen? Is it, is it outlying? Is it just sort of a thing that might happen or is it imminent? Is it something you know is going to happen and you know how soon? And this is how you are able to allocate your time and energy and sometimes your money um, to solving a problem is by, saying to yourself, you know, what's the probability of this? And then how soon is it going to happen? And I have lots of fun flow charts in all of my books. And so calm the <laughs> down has works, takes you through all of these, these processes, um, which really enables you to set aside a lot of the noise and a bunch of the emotional puppies that are giving you, uh, you know, agita for no reason and really focus on the few things that are real problems that need solving. Um, And like I said, at the beginning of our conversation, I'm not here to judge or minimize or put a value on anybody's problems. Right. I'm not calling them real or unreal. It's up to you to choose to say, oh, you know what? 
the probability of that is really low. I shouldn't be worrying about it anymore. If you want to keep worrying about it, you know, suit yourself. <laughs> right. But um, but that's really what the book is trying to explain. Right. Yeah. And it's know, what worked for me. Yeah. You know, I'm actually doing one of those online courses right now on memory. And mm-hmm. uh, it's with uh, Jim Quick. Um, and he, he talks about killing ants, which are automatic negative thoughts. You know, and, and I catch myself sometimes saying like, oh, well, with my luck, you know, that's going to happen. With my luck, my computer's going to break down five minutes before I have to go and, and record mm-hmm. this pod- podcast. Um, but then I catch myself and I'm like, okay, why did I even go there? Like, why, why mm-hmm. not, you know, with my luck, I'm going to have a great interview i'm gonna be best friends with the person (laughs) that i just interviewed Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. we're gonna do a work together in the future you know why is that not my go-to um as opposed to um you know looking at looking for the problem to find me Mm -hmm. you know and i think i think a lot of us set ourselves up for disappointment and then it's like oh yeah well there he goes (laughs) well and in the book i i actually refer to that as conjuring a storm out of thin air yes and you know there's just like a lot of times where the what ifs that are swirling around in your head can get out of control and then maybe you take some action that you wouldn't otherwise have taken because you've convinced yourself of this what if that's going to happen to you and then you create a whole new problem that you never would have had right Right. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that you made that distinction about feelings um, because, you know, you're Mm -hmm. not a therapist. Uh, But I guess where I was going with that partially is with the person that says, well, just calm down. It'll all work out. You know, because sometimes it seems like that's a little fake, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Somebody says that. And it depends on the scenario, of course. But sometimes I I do feel like, well, you know, because I'll put it this way. I've seen the same people who will tell me, don't worry. Mm-hmm. flip out about something that happened 20 years ago oh yeah you know I mean, and, people and freak so, out in all kinds of different ways for different reasons on different right. days it's definitely something that can't and this is why i try to address it with logic and reason instead yeah. of emotions because you really who, who can control their emotions right so um you know when, when we are dealing with one another because you know this is like you said, we can't be uh, so in control of our emotions to the point that we're just like not feeling anything, right? Like we go through right. them, we acknowledge them, we mm-hmm. uh, cope and, and uh, uh, take whatever action we need to get through there. But when we're dealing with one another, you know, in because at the end of the day, I think we all want to live in a society, right? In a society where we all, you know, care about our neighbors. Um how do you know when someone needs to vent when they uh, come to you and they say, you know, I've got this thing going on and I just want to be heard, you know, like I mm-hmm. kind of brought in, in at the beginning. Um, what's an appropriate way to address that without getting sucked in and becoming, you know, like fueling it for the person and also taking on that negativity for yourself? Well, I mean, I think you can literally say the words, I hear you, I hear you, you know, to, to whomever is, is having this crisis. And it's obviously very different uh, whether somebody you know is, you know, grieving the sudden death of a loved one or whether somebody you know is pissed off because their boss, you know, called a surprise meeting that they weren't ready for. There's a lot of different ways in which there's a lot of different scenarios where people would want to 
vent. And I talk about this uh, in the book under the, the, the heading goodwill. And, you know, to me, you have these funds that you draw on uh, your time, energy and money. And these are the things that you use when, you know, to solve problems in your life or to uh, adversely react to problems in your life. You might be wasting your time, energy and money in certain ways. But the fourth fund is goodwill. And that is not that fund is not kept by you. It is kept by other people. And Mm. to stay in good standing, you have to not freak out on them all of the time. But goodwill is the fund that is controlled by everyone else in your life, not you. And you can manage your own time and energy and money. But in order to keep your account of goodwill in good standing, you can't be in constant crisis mode. And I write about exactly the the situation that you were asking in the book, you know, what do you do when your friend comes to you or your family member comes to you and is really upset? What's the right reaction? And I do think that I hear you is a really simple, useful, helpful response that doesn't send you into, oh, it'll be okay territory because maybe it won't. And it just sounds really disingenuous to say that it will, but it also doesn't suck you into solving the problem for them. Now, in some cases, you will want to help. And in some cases, you should be helping. But just generally speaking, if it's the kind of thing where you want to be able to give somebody a valuable, um, good feeling response, I think just saying, I hear you, you're heard is it is the literal truth, you know, and and that can feel calming. Uh, yes. to the person who's having who's having the crisis. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, so many of us, that's all we want is just to be heard. And when we're going mm-hmm. through those um, difficult situations, uh, you know, a lot of times it's because someone has just put up a wall between you and them where you feel helpless, right? You feel, mm-hmm. um, you feel uh, not only helpless, but um, I'm going to use this word again that I used before, discounted. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like you just don't matter. Like you're, you're not worth my time is what it uh, sometimes comes across as, right? When somebody, mm-hmm. somebody says uh, the other, you know, just oh, don't worry about it. It'll be okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, you know, I'd like to, uh, we are going to have to uh, end right here. I know you've got things to do and, and mm-hmm. there's probably some construction or something waiting yes. to happen outside your door. All the guys are going to leave on their <laughs> motorcycles and it's going to get really loud and a little bit. So, I can hear them packing up outside. That's so. hilarious. <laughs> um, so, Sarah, is are there any parting words, anything that, um, besides buy your books, uh, right. <laughs> anything that you would like to leave people with, um, you know, that they can kind of chew on, uh, you know, after this interview? Yeah, I would just say that if I've learned anything in the last three years of making these big life changes, you know, leaving behind my career, moving to a different country, becoming an author and writing books that are all in that self-help zone, it's that it's never, it's never too late, but it's also never too early to start making these changes. You know, if I could have told my, my 20 year old self, uh, if I could have given her some advice and she would have taken it, um, then things would have gotten even better, you know, even longer ago. So I just think that there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting something more different out of your life and that there's never a bad time to start making that change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Again, our guest heretic today is Sarah Knight of the author of calm the 
down. And uh, her website is sarahnightauthor.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-K-N-I-G-H-T and the word author.com. Uh, also, uh, that actually forwards to, was it uh, nofxgivenguides.com? Yes, nofxgivenguides.com. Okay. So but it'll that's, take them there. That's, I was going to say, that's, that's, that, that might be easier to remember than spelling your yeah. name. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. And, um, yeah, thanks again of, for having me. Best of luck to you in, in the Dominican Republic. Thank you very much. And I'll look forward to hearing the podcast when it goes live and spreading it around. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch. Okay. Okay, thanks. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean. And our operations manager is Michelle Med. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at the new and improved nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher.